story is told of a man, we'll give the name Jim. Due to a business trip to Europe, he leaves his prized cat, Bootsy, at the home of his brother in his care. From Europe, he calls to check on Bootsy, only to hear the following. He says, I don't know how to tell you this, but I went out to get the newspaper, and I forgot that Bootsy was staying with us. She ran out of the door. She ran up a tree. She jumped onto the roof, and she was there for about an hour playing around on the roof. I tried to do everything I could to get her to come down, but unfortunately, Bootsy slipped, fell to the driveway. Bootsy died. His brother is shocked by this. And more so, he was shocked at just the callous way that he presented the story. And after a little interchange, Jim came back and said, well, how how should I have told you? He said, well, what you could have said is that, you know, I went out to get the paper and Bootsy ran out and, you know, went up a tree and jumped up onto the roof of the house and you tried to get her down and she slipped and fell, but everything appeared to be okay. But just as a precaution, you took her to the vet just to have her checked out. Then when I called back the next day and I asked how Bootsy was, you could say, well, you know, the doctor, the vet thinks everything's okay, but he just wants to keep another day just as an observation. And uh, and then when I called you back the third day, you could have said, well, you know what, during the course of the night, Bootsy kind of had a turn for the worse, but, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen. Then on the fourth day when I called you, you could have said, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, I don't know how to tell you this, but Bootsy had a turn for the worse, and and Bootsy, Bootsy is no longer with us. And his brother went, wow, you know, I, I really didn't think about that. You know, I'm sorry that you took it that way. And, they, and he said, will you forgive me? He said, sure, I'll forgive you. And, you know, and he said, by the way, you know, how's mom doing? And, uh, you know, he thought about it for a second. He said, uh, she's up on the roof playing. <laughs> you know, and, and when I think of that, it, it just, it's just kind of like, you know, communication is so important, you know, and, it, and it's so important to learn how to communicate in a manner in which the message can be understood, obviously, but at the end of the day, it's still the message that must be acted on. I mean, think about it. It's like, you know, sometimes we don't like how people say things and we use how they say it as an excuse not to hear what they said, but it's really what was said that we need to deal with. And we all need to learn to communicate in a way where people will listen, uh, where people will understand where we're coming from, to try to communicate in a way that expresses our concern for one another. And I'll give you an example. This past week, um, I, I was tattooed and, and, uh, and marked for radiation that starts next week, and that was an interesting experience. This has all been very interesting. I've said the word interesting about 30,000 times in three months. How was your day? Interesting. You know, how was the doctor's trip? Interesting. How was that experience? That was interesting. Um, but, uh, but they wanted to do another MRI. Now, I've shared with you how much I enjoy the MRI experience. And then I read in the newspaper this week, the guys who came up with this technology won a Nobel Prize. It's like, you know, were they ever in one of those? I, eh. <laughs> but, you know, they won a Nobel Prize. But anyway, so they wanted me to go back. So I went back on Thursday to, uh, to do an MRI. And, and, and I thought, well, last time I took these happy pills that they give you. And, uh, and, I didn't, and it didn't work. I mean, it just, I was like, hey, this isn't working. I still know I'm going in there. I can still sense this. I thought it was supposed to remove all of that, those anxiety things. And, and, it, and so I thought, well, I might as well just not take anything. So they started sliding me in the machine, and I started screaming like a little girl. And, um, and I was like, no! I was like, no, stop, stop. And I was only in about here. I mean, I was only halfway. And I said, no, you got to stop, stop, you got to stop. Pull me out, pull me out. And the guy pulled me out. I said, we'll reschedule, we'll do this another time, we'll give you a call, don't call me, I'll call you. And, uh, and, and my wife, Linda, the encourager that she is, she went, you can do this. 
I was laying on the car. She goes, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. We're not coming back. You're doing it now. We're not rescheduling it. You can do this. Slide them in. And, and, and I, just, I, I, just laid, I just laid back down. She said, I can do it. She knows me better than me. We've known each other 30 years. She said, I can do it. I said, I just, well, go ahead. Slide me. But, but do me one favor. If I start crying, just stop. And so, sure enough, slid me in, and uh, you know, got that to this part right here, which is like right there. And uh, and then they started to do this, the, 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 this process that they do. And about eight minutes later, he came out and said, "I got good news for you." I said, well, "We ain't, we're not done, are we?" I was like, "You know, 40 minutes. I know it didn't go that fast." He goes, "No, I can move you out one more inch this way." I was like, "I love you. Let's do lunch." You're the best. I said, I told him to. I said, man, thank you. I wasn't blaming you for putting me in, but I'm going to thank you for pulling me out just one inch. And I was thinking about this whole idea of communicating, you know, just how to communicate. And the guy was great. He goes, you know, it's kind of like I see guys like you cry like babies all the time, you know. And it's like, hey, it's not like I don't go through this regularly. It's like, oh, man, thank you. And so, you know, we were going through this experience. And and one of the things that I was thinking as I was laying there um, with plenty of time to to stop and, and think and is that I, one of the things I love about the Bible is that God just tells it the way it is. But he gives us instruction as to how to communicate with one another. We're to speak the truth in love, for example. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. To communicate in love, and yet at the same time, the message doesn't change, as was sung. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. I'm not ashamed to share with people what it is that God requires of us. The world we live in is stopping, and they're asking, you know, why am I here? What is my purpose when I die? Where am I going to go? And we're running into a lot of people now through this cancer experience who have death at the forefront of their minds, whereas before it was on the back burner, even though the odds are one and one, we're all going to die. And the reason's simple. The soul that sins shall die. You know, it's the curse of the sin of Adam. But thank God the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, and it gives us opportunities to be able to share the truth. The truth is, look, we're all dying. The truth is we're all alienated from God. The truth is is that the way we live our life is an indication of what God says about us is true, and that is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth is none of us are righteous. The truth is no one can ever work their way to heaven. The truth is is that we've all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned from God. The truth is that we are guilty as charged before God, and that in and of itself is the bad news, and that we're all all on our way to hell in eternal condemnation. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever will put their faith and trust in him, repent of sin and turn to God and trust that Jesus Christ died in their place, has risen from the dead, is alive today and has the authority to forgive sin and to offer eternal life. What a wonderful message that is. Because it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. We have nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. We're not in a position to negotiate. You know, I could say I'm not coming back and going through an MRI, but it's like, you know what? I have everything to lose and and nothing to gain by that. 
We can all say, God, I'll figure out my own way to get to heaven, and I don't need you. But the reality of it is, is there's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way, and it's me. And we have nothing to negotiate. We have nothing to offer. Jesus said to those who had believed upon him, he said, if you abide in me and you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you shall know the truth and the truth, God's truth, will set you free. God's truth will set you free from the condemnation of God by trusting in Christ. God's truth will set you free from the struggles that you have in your marriage. God's truth will set you free from the troubles that you have with your children. God's truth will set you free from the problems that you have in the material things of life, your job, finances, material things, whatever it is. Whatever problem that we have, Jesus said, cast all your cares upon me and I will care for you. God's truth gives us everything we need to know about how to live this life. The question is whether we're open to listen to what he has to say. And a lot of things that God has to say are really hard things to hear but the truth will set you free. Have you been freed up by God's truth? I tell you all this because today in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we come to a passage of scripture that I've entitled, if you've got your notes in front of you, very simply, I've entitled Plain Talk. For in it, Jesus tells his disciples in plain talk, a plain language, what it means to be a true disciple, a genuine follower or learner of Jesus Christ. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 6, verses 17 through 26, we will learn in this passage of four characteristics of a genuine disciple. Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 17, we read these words. And he descended with them and stood on a level place. And there was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. You know, as I read this passage, I pictured in my mind the scene that's laid out before us, Jesus descending from the mountain with his 12 newly appointed apostles. If you recall from our last message, the apostles are chosen from the multitude of disciples. The word apostle is formed of two words in the Greek, apo, which means apart and stello, to set aside or to set fast. The meaning is very simple. It's one that God has taken and called and set apart for his purposes. In the Gospel of Mark, a parallel account in chapter 3, as I was looking and reading in that, it became 
something stood out that became very apparent to me in the order of events that were laid out before us. In Mark chapter 3, we're told as Jesus appointed or called these apostles to himself, that one of the things that he did was it says that he appointed them for the purpose of being with him. In verse 13, he went up to the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that first they might be with him and that, they, that he might send them out to preach. And I like the simplicity, the plain talk, so to speak, the order of that. Jesus called them first to be with him, to spend time with him, to get to know him, to understand the message, to hear what it was that he said, to learn the things that he wanted to taught. Uh, teach and as they were taught these things that they were then sent out as his ambassador his his missionary so to speak his envoy emissary they were sent out into the world to share with the world what he had just shared with them they were simply messengers we are messengers of God. We are appointed by God, called by God, chosen by God. Those who have repented of sin and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ, trusting Him as our Savior. He says, I want to spend time with you so that I can send you out with the message that I have entrusted to you to share to the world. As I mentioned last time, the Apostle Paul said that we are like earthen clay vessels that are entrusted with a great treasure, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share with those God will bring into our life. And so he's saying that first, the order is so critical and so important. We need to spend time personally alone with him so that he can teach us and we can understand what it is that he's called us to do. Each one of us who have come to know Christ are gifted and given a gift by God and we're equipped. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those he calls. And we're given a gift to use in his service for his purposes and for his glory. We're to go out and be his messenger. And what he's saying to these men is very simple. And I want to share with you is that there are characteristics that will be true of every genuine disciple. First, we will spend time with him. I had dinner the other night, Linda and I, with friends of ours. And one of the things that the man said that was very compelling to me was he said, you know what, for years of my life, I've kind of ignored God in my life. Yes, I came to know Christ earlier in my life. I repented of my sin. I believed that he died for my sins. I've trusted in him as my savior. And then I just got sidetracked, you know, with all the different things of life. And he was never the focal point as the challenge was laid out this morning. He never fixed his eyes on Jesus. He never had him as the center of his life. He kind of set him aside and as, as a result of that, got into all kind of troubles in life. And he said that now that God has brought him back to himself and he's repented of sin and he's come back to where he needs to be, he says, you know what? I can tell that God is doing something in my life because the first thing that I do every morning, instead of grabbing the sports section of the L.A. Times or the Orange County Register, I grab my Bible and I go and I spend 20 to 30 minutes alone with my God. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to, to start each day that way. Each day is new. His mercies are new every morning. Every day that we're given is a gift from God, not to take for granted. And I challenge you last time we're together to see God's miraculous hand in the everyday events of life and realize that everything is a, a gift and a miracle from God. If you get up tomorrow, it is a gift from the hand of God that you have life. Dedicate that day to Him and in his service. Spend that day starting out with him and what he wants to say to you and how he can use you that day for his purposes and his glory. There's time to read the sports section. There's time to do other things, but there better be a time to spend alone with our God. 
See, as we look at this and understand it, you know, in Matthew chapter 28, it brings a whole new sense of depth and awareness to me of the great, what we call the great commission of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, verse 18, we're told, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even into an MRI machine. Amen. Preach it, brother. You know, you got to make Scripture personal, you know. Hey, it's like, hey, Chuck, and I'm with you always to the end of the earth, to the bowels of an MRI machine, to the bed of a hospital. I mean, I'm with you. Trust me. And he's saying, go and make disciples. And the obvious question is, if we're commanded to go, and as we're going, as we go about our lives... As we go to work, as we go to different functions, as we go and the different things that we do throughout the course of the day, he says, we're to go and as we're going, we're to make disciples. And the interesting thing to me is, the question has to be raised, if this is the great commission, if this is the great calling, the great sending of God's people into the world, and we're told to go and make disciples, the question I have, it's a very personal one, I ask myself this, have I been making disciples? Have you been making disciples? What is a disciple? You don't even, some of us don't even know, am I a disciple? And if we're to go make disciples, we need to know what a disciple is. And then we need to ask the question, am I a disciple? Am I learning? Am I open? Am I teachable? Am I being conformed to the image of Christ? As I move forward in life, am I becoming more like Jesus? Or am I more like the rest of the world that we live in? Are old things really pa- have old things really passed? Have all things become really new in my life? And what's the evidence to the world around me that I'm no longer the guy that I used to be? I'm no longer the gal that I used to be. What's the evidence that's there? And if we're to make disciples, what is it that we're supposed to be teaching others? And that's the beautiful thing about this passage. And it's in plain talk, simple language. And I want to share with you four characteristics of a disciple from Luke chapter 6. Jesus descends from the mountain with the apostles, the twelve, and a multitude of disciples where he levels with them. Or on the plain, in plain talk, he tells them what it means to be a disciple. And in this plain talk, or if you want to change the sermon title to the sermon on the level... You know, we're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is a Sermon on the Level, and he's going to level with them, and he's just going to deal with them directly and look them in the face and say, these are four characteristics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, genuine disciples are those who receive the healing touch of Jesus. If you'll look at those verses in verses 17 through 19, we're told that he descended with them and stood on a level place. There was a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him, and he was healing them all. You know, in this passage, we see the the compassion of Jesus in action. He's always available. He's always accessible to those who seek him. 
We've already learned that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. And He demonstrates that He has the power and authority to do that by taking those who had physical ailments and was healing them. You remember when He healed the paralytic and He said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to take up your pallet and walk? He said, in order that that you know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, take up your pallet and walk. And what He was saying to them very clearly and simply was that not only can I heal you physically, but more importantly, I've come to heal you spiritually. I've come to give you forgiveness. I've come to give you eternal life. But I can only give that, though it's sufficient for the world, only to those who come to me broken and and, and contrite of heart, repenting of their sins. Jesus' message never changed to the world. He always started every sermon with, you know what? God's command, God's desire for men is that men everywhere repent. You have got to turn from sin in order to turn to God. And when you do that, he is there with open arms. The cross is a wonderful picture of extended arms that are outreached for all of the world. Come unto me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So as we look at this, for those who responded to the finished work of Christ, they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They believe that he rose again from the dead. The Bible says that you shall be saved. To those of us who are truly born again, we've been touched by the healing power of Jesus Christ. The healing touch. The question as we move forward and that we've got to ask ourselves is that no one can be a disciple who has not first been touched by the healing power of Jesus Christ. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Have you repented of sin? Have you received Christ as your Savior, believing He died for your sins and He rose again from the dead? Or do you trust in some religious system? Do you trust in some system of works? Do you trust in something or anything other than Him and Him alone? And if you do, you are lost for all of eternity if you do not turn to Christ. People don't like to hear that. It's like, I didn't like to hear, hey, you got another MRI test. I don't want to hear that. But it's, the way, it's just the way it is. Because that's God's plan. That's God's purpose. That's God's calling for every person to repent and to trust in Christ. That's God's way. There is no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ the Lord. The question as we move forward is, have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for its forgiveness? If so, you've been touched by his healing power. You've been born again by the will of God, not by your own efforts or the will of man. You've been washed and regenerated according to the Spirit of God. He has come into your life and is present with you today. And he convicts you of sin and righteousness and judgment. He leads you and guides you into all truth. And you know now as you read the Word of God and as you leave here on a regular basis, my prayer is, I don't care if anybody ever remembers who I am but I just pray that every time I share God's message that you deal with what it is that God has put on your heart. Because you can, blow, you can write me off, you can blow off anything that I say, you can say, you know what, well, I disagree with him. Hey, disagree with me all you want. But the question is, if what I shared with you is true, then you've got to deal with it. And God won't let you go. And he won't let you alone. I get people all the time say, did my wife call you? Did my husband call you? you that whole message was just for me. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, think about how prideful a person has to be to think that I would prepare a whole message just for them. (laughs) And somehow we've duped the rest of you to come so that they don't feel like we're just meeting one-on-one, me and that person. 
I mean, think about that for a second. It's like, he's talking just to me. Hey, that's God talking to everybody at the same time because God has the ability to do that. And his spirit is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of heart and separate bone from marrow. That's God. Deal with him. And he says, repent. And if you've repented of sin and you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, the Bible says that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, now one who is open and, and, and teachable. Genuine disciples are those who seek and receive the healing touch of Christ. And with this in mind, genuine disciples are, number two, those who recognize their need before God. And I want you to see this in verse 20 20 and 21, and Jesus turning his gaze on his disciples. So it's very specific who this address is being delivered to. There was a multitude of people, and as we'll see, there'll be a bunch of religious folks who are listening. There's going to be a multitude of people who are there. But specifically, he looked at his disciples, his apostles, those 12 who were just appointed, and then the multitude of disciples who are following him. And, the, and, the, and he's saying to those who have trusted in Christ, I have got something to share with you about what it means to be a disciple. Now, the rest is going to hear it, but you know what? It'll make no sense to them. And in fact, if anything, it'll be nonsense to those who have never come to trust trust in Christ. The word of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who have been saved, it is the word of God in very clear language, and it makes sense. Before I repented of sin and trusted in Christ, I tried to read the Bible, and I thought, this is the goofiest stuff I ever read. I mean, this is nuts. Somebody go, oh, you should read your Bible. And you start to read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Apart from Him, all things came into being, came to being. And it's like, What? is that and then if you hit one of the genealogy chapters (laughs) then there's no hope there you're going what now practical living what is this but for those of us who are redeemed to those of us who have been purchased with the blood of christ this is the precious word of god a love letter to god's people And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, I've got something to tell you about what it means to be a disciple. And what he says, number one, is this. And I call these the four H-bombs of Jesus. Hydrogen bombs, man, are just going to be dropped on us. And that's why they're all in H, because it helps me to remember them. And turning his gaze, he said to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What? Blessed are you who are poor. Now, if you put yourself in a position of sitting there listening and going, you know what, let me tell you what I understand. From the Old Testament, everyone understood who was listening that the only reason that God's people were ever poor is because they turned from God and they experienced the consequence of their sin. They understood, as we understand even in our culture, and misunderstand at times, that if I am blessed with material things, then God is shining His favor upon me. If I am without material things, then I must be suffering the discipline or the consequence of God. That was their clear understanding. Israel understood that, you know what, when God blessed them and they were materially wealthy, it was because God's hand was upon them. When those, when those wealth and those blessings were taken from them and they were oppressed by their enemy, they recognized and knew that, you know what, I need to repent of my sin. We need to repent as a nation. We need to call upon God. Forgive us for what we did because obviously, God, you have stopped blessing us. 
God promised him a land flowing with milk and honey. God raised him up. We see in the times of Solomon and David all the great wealth and the riches that they had. But when they were disobedient before God, God oppressed them. Nations came in and took all their stuff. In the same way, you and I have mistakenly begun to believe that if we are blessed materially, somehow God is shining his favor on us. What Jesus is going to blow up here is the false notion that those who have nothing materially are not blessed by God and that those who have a lot of stuff materially are blessed by God. And what he's going to do is shake them all up by saying, hey, blessed are the poor. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but... I didn't like the days in our life where we were poor. I hear people all the time saying, oh, you know, remember our first apartment? We had one little, you know, little crate that we sat on. You know, we had an orange crate. And, you know, and and it's like everybody looks so fondly back at those days. But no one wants to stay sitting on an orange crate for very long if they can help it. But I hear that all the time. Oh, remember our first apartment? Weren't things wonderful then? Well, if they were so wonderful, why aren't you in a hurry to get out of there, try to buy a house and put furniture in it? You know, that's nonsense. It's like Linda and I, we, were, we moved from Pennsylvania to California. We were promised a job when we got here. We got here, no job. Our daughter was six months old. My wife was looking at me like, wow, aren't you the leader? And, uh, and it was like, holy smokes, you know? And, 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 and the most humbling, embarrassing, whatever you want to call it, I think humbling is the best word, the most humbling period of my life was to have moved my wife and my daughter 3,000 miles across country and have no money, no job, and have to go and get food stamps in order to eat. It was the most humiliating, humbling time in my life. And the reality of all of that is, if somebody would have came to me and said, Chuck, but blessed are the poor, I'd have knocked them out. <laughs> I, was like, I was just like, I'm not in the mood for this. And yet the Bible teaches that there were blessed poor, that one can be poor poor and blessed by God. And in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, if you recall, the opening prominent quotation that Jesus shared in the temple was this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Do you realize that there were those who were in captivity who were poor as far as the world was concerned, but rich in the eyes of God. And you know why that was? Because they never sold out to their captors. They never developed the the mentality of embracing the culture that was an alienation from God. They never compromised. My point is they never compromised their faith. Joseph and Mary were of the blessed poor. They had nothing materially, but they had everything because they looked for and longed for the day that the Messiah would come. They waited for their Redeemer. They looked for Him as Anna and Simeon did in the temple, and they had nothing the world had to offer, but they were blessed in God's sight because they looked for their Redeemer. They waited for Him. They didn't sell out. They didn't embrace the culture. They didn't buy into when in Rome, do what the Romans do. If you're going to be successful in business, you've got to do whatever it is that you need to do in business to be successful. You've got to lie, cheat, and steal on your insurance. You've got to you know, do this, that, and the other thing. There's so many things that you've got to do in order, because I hear it all the time, how can we stay in business in the state of California? Well, maybe we'll be able to at some point, but the bottom line is, how can you stay in business when all the taxes are basically running companies out of the state? 
And so what happens is men begin to develop the mindset, well, in order to survive, we're going to have to compromise what we know to be true before God. And God says, no, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who have integrity. Blessed are those who don't compromise. Blessed are those who don't sell out and buy into the world system. Blessed are those who aren't conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of their mind that you know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's the message. That's what he's sharing. That's what he's trying to help all of us to understand. That's why, as, Elizabeth, as Mary sang in her song, when she sang to Elizabeth, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The humble state of his servant. Jesus came along significantly. He gave up. He gave the poor good news and established his kingdom by becoming poor himself. His life as an itinerant preacher was singularly poor. He said of himself, foxes have whole, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Paul would write later where he said that, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The point is very simple. Though God does sometimes grant his disciples material riches, we should never trust in them, but in the one who gives them. We need to be more focused on the giver and not the gift. So many of us get so hung up on the gift, we forget who has given it to us. Let's focus on the giver and not the gift. Genuine disciples do not compromise with the fallen world. Their belief system is rooted in Christ and his world word, and they do not compromise to the world and adopt that everybody else's doing it mentality. Before moving on, I got a tough questions that I had to ask of myself, and I'll ask of you, and that's this. Do you trust in your stuff or in the Savior? You know, do you sense your need for God, or is it dulled by your material comforts? Do you boast or take pride in your accomplishments, your job, your title, your house, your houses, your car, your cars, your clothes, your bank accounts, your retirement funds? Or do you boast in the Lord and walk humbly with Him? Because what I learned from the Word of God is this, a genuine disciple boasts in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And as Job said, naked I've come, naked I'll go out. God decides to take everything He's given me, blessed be the name of the Lord, because you know what? It's all about Him and not about stuff. Even though He chooses to slay me, I'll still trust in Him. It's a tough question. Tough questions. Because you really don't know how much you trust in those things until God removes it from you. And if he removes it from you and you fall on your face, then you know you've been leaning too heavily on it instead of him. See, and if that bomb wasn't enough, Jesus immediately drops a second one in which he adds to their shock and awe by saying, Blessed are you who will hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who hunger now. For those who are hungry and starving in the world, it's a hard thing for someone to accept and to understand that somehow if I'm starving, you know, physically, that I'll be blessed by God. And we need to recognize and understand something. You could be starving physically, and if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know what, that's the least of your problems. You could have everything the world has to offer. You could have all the money in the world and all the riches of this world. And if that's everything you trust in that, and you haven't trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have nothing either because I'll guarantee you this, the only thing that's going to happen to all that stuff is your family's going to fight over who gets what when you die. And that's just the truth of that. 
I'll tell you what, when I was laying in the hospital bed, when somebody says you have cancer, when someone says if it spreads to your lungs, it's fatal, it's like, you know what, I'm not thinking about my house. I'm not thinking about my car. Although I did say I always wanted a fountain in my yard before I died, and I went, I got a fountain. I don't know what that was all about. I figured, you know, my, in my family, they'd laugh every time they looked out there. If God chose to call me home, they'd be going, there's a fountain. I don't know what he was thinking. Let's get rid of that. <laughs> but it's like, you know, but the bottom line of all of this is what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. Blessed are those who hunger for God. As David writes, as the deer pants by the water's brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. A deer who was being chased by a hunter would run for miles and miles being chased and it, and it would be chased in fear. Fear for its life and it would be so thirsty it would be just, just famished by the time it would get to water. But it was afraid to stop and drink because it thought it would, it would die. But when that deer finally got to the water's brooks, David used the word picture and said, just as a deer is, is frightened for its life and is running and is just exhausted and finally comes upon water and just drinks and drinks and drinks till there is no more to drink. Man, I've been out on runs when I used to run marathons and it'd be like, man, I, I used to stop at people's houses and try to get a drink out of their faucet. You know, you take some water and you think it'll last and 13 miles later you go, well, wow, gee, man, I needed to have a backpack. And it would be like, and you'd be sneaking up to someone's... I mean, I looked at water going down the side of the gutters in the street a couple of times and went, it's moving fast, it must be clear. <laughs> and it was just like, and it was God just said, man, that's the word picture. Blessed are you who hunger for God. Blessed are you who thirst for God. Blessed are you that can't get enough of God in your life. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be, you know, then, then you'll be filled do you hunger for God? Do you hunger and thirst? Jesus with the woman at the well said, Hey, you know what? You drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink of the living water that I'll have to give you, it'll be springing forth from within you, and you'll never thirst any longer. And she didn't understand. She said, I want some of that water. I don't want to have to keep coming down here with all of the stuff to get water to carry home, you know, all the way back to the village. Give me that water that I'll never be thirsty again so that I'll never have to take another drink. And he's saying, no, I am the living water. Those who thirst for me shall be satisfied. He later said in John 6, I'm the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. You hunger for God, I will satisfy you. Come to me and eat of me, what he was saying. And many heard and said, no, we don't want that. We just want you to fill our stomachs, not forgive our souls. He said, but blessed are you who are hungry, hungry for God, thirsty for him, hungry, hungry and thirsty for his righteousness. You shall be satisfied. I don't know, how, how many times have you ever said this? You had a big meal and you said, that's it, I'm not eating anything else today. <laughs> right then and there, it's just a sign that you're condemned before God. Thou shalt not lie. <laughs> By dinner time, I, I, say, I, I tell my wife, oh, we have big lunch. Oh, you know what, don't worry about dinner night. What's for dinner? <laughs> I thought we weren't eating dinner. Oh, well, I was when I was full. I'm hungry now. Oh, it's like, you know, I'm hungry now. The point is, is that you can drink all you want. You'll be thirsty again. You can eat all you want. You'll be hungry again. It's like Thanksgiving dinner, you know. It's like the best. I mean, it's like you stuff your face. You unbutton your pants. You know, you sit down. You just fall asleep. You watch some football. And this is just true confessions, by the way, at this point. <laughs> and then you buckle back up again and you head on back to the table. Why? Because you're hungry again. But what God's saying is, you know, Jesus says, come to me. If you hunger for me, if you're a genuine disciple, you can't get enough of me and I will satisfy you. 
Isn't that awesome? That's the best. That is the best. There is no better place to be. And I'm going to challenge you. Don't grow weary in being hungry for God. Don't, as my friend did, put him on the back shelf and think that this world can satisfy you in some ways because it can't. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you want. It's always bigger, better, and improved. It's always this color now instead of that color then. If we could be satisfied or content with material things, I'd still be wearing a Nehru jacket and bell bottoms. Right? What a scary thought that is. But it always changes. It's always changing. Styles are always changing. Things are always changing. Oh, look at our house. I'm so grateful that we have it. Then why are you looking for another one? Because it doesn't satisfy. Only God can. Only God can. In addition to humility and hunger, a genuine disciple is also one who is found, I like to say, hurting for others. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You know, this is certainly not an attack on laughter or joy. Jesus doesn't mean blessed are grim, cheerless, grumpy Christians. Seriously, I believe some people believe that somehow that's godly to be grumpy. And I just kind of go, man, you know what? I'll give you an example. You know, Charles Spurgeon once remarked that some preachers he had known appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. I like that. Robert Louis Stevenson must have known some preachers like that because he once wrote in his diary, I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. He was so shocked. It was like, you know, it's one thing to be challenged and convicted. It's another thing to come to the church, praise God, worship Him, be with His people, hear the Word of God, and have joy in your life. I'm troubled by some of the things that I see. It's like, okay, you know, you got this guy bouncing around up here leading worship with energy, man. It's like, hey, have another, ca- you know, have, have another decaf, okay? But it's like, you know, then we're driving up to UCLA, and I don't know if you ever notice things. I'm, I, I'm a, I like to observe things because I'm always looking for, everything's an illustration. So I'm driving up, and, and, I, you know, and I can't help but seeing zillions of people on the 405 you know, freeway driving up toward L.A. to go to UCLA. They're everywhere, people everywhere, cars everywhere. And, and, you know, and I always comfort my wife when I'm looking around making observations instead of watching the, where I should be going. You know, but I, I like to look. And, and, and how, many time, have you, how many of you have seen this in your driving? See, those who get the CD or tape are going to be like, what did he do? What did he do? And then you got to have to, sometimes you just have to come here in person. But, but the point is, is that, you know, you see people all the time. They're just, they're just singing, man. They're singing. They got the radio on. They're singing. They're just having, you know, they're just enjoying the moment. We've all gone to secular concerts. We see people singing, clapping, all just excited about what goes on. And then God's people come together and they praise God by going like this. What is that? What is that? I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to, you know, stop being hypocritical. Stop praising secular music and all that goes along with it. And let's praise God for what he has done. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? I mean, you can loosen up a little bit. 
I, you know, and I understand worship music, worship styles, all of that. Look, you know, we're going to disagree from now until finally we're in the presence of the Lord and he's the choir director and none of us are going to be able to complain about anything. But until then, all I'm going to do is challenge you to think about something. Do you have any reason to have joy in your life? Do you have any reason to praise God for what he's done? Then praise him. Praise him. Bless him. Have joy. Man, stop walking around like you think it's godly to be grumpy because it's not. Jesus isn't saying that. What he's saying is, blessed are you who weep now. We're to weep. We're to laugh. We're to have joy. We had dinner the other night with a couple of couples and every one of us were going through something in our life. And you know what? We laughed and we had joy and we had a wonderful time together because every one of us knew Christ and knew God was in control of whatever the circumstances were. Does it make it easier at times? Uh, You know, is it still difficult? Yeah, you know what? I don't like any of this, but I love the Lord. And we can talk about Him and we can keep Him as the focus of what goes on in our life. And we can smile and we can laugh and we can smile and laugh and cry at the same time because we know God is in control of all things. Like what Oswald Chambers had to say. He said, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? Is laughter pagan? We have already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and it leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. And I agree with them. And you've probably noticed that. I love being here. I love preaching the Word of God. I love what Christ has done in my life. And I want you to love Him too. And I want you to praise Him too. And I want you to find joy in your relationship with Him also because there's no better place to be. But I also want to tell you this. We need to weep over sin. We need to weep over sin. We need to be broken over the heartache of people who will die a Christless eternity and go to hell judged and condemned by God for their sin and their rejection of Christ and His free gift that He has to offer. We need to weep over the right things. We need to stop laughing over things that we should be weeping over. We need to weep over abortion. We need to weep over the brokenness of humanity. We need to weep over those who are dying a Christless eternity. We need to weep over sin and the consequence of it. We need to weep over abused and battered women. We need to weep over alcoholism and drug addiction. We need to weep over sin in our culture. We need to weep over the lack of integrity in business and people that are lying and cheating and stealing and have all the wealthy things and all the material things the world has to offer. But I'm going to tell you right now, they don't have God's blessing and they will be judged for what they do. They will be held accountable. We need to weep over those things that God says to weep over for then we will be comforted. I can't tell you how many times I hear a story of friends or someone who has, who has given in and, and they fell to the enticement of sin and I weep because I know the consequences that they'll pay. Sin will take them further than they wanted to go. Sin will keep them longer than they wanted to stay. And sin will cost them more than they ever understood they would have to pay. And my heart breaks when I hear stories like that. We need to weep over sin. We need to laugh and praise God over those things where we should be joyous, but we better be weeping over sin. Jesus levels with his disciples and tells them in plain talk, if this isn't enough, he finishes this with these words. 
He said, and blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when men hate you. And not when men hate you because you're just an idiot. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've met Christians. I mean, let's face it, folks. We've all met Christians. They're just idiots. The way they conduct themselves, how they speak to other people, the way that they talk, they don't speak the truth in love, they're judgmental, they're arrogant, they're pompous, they're prideful, they're mean-spirited. You know, I mean, and you know what? And when people hate you because of that, it's just because of you and being stupid. He's saying, blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, cast insults at you for his name's sake. Blessed are you when they hate you because you told them the truth in love that they needed to repent of their sin. Blessed are you when they hate you and ostracize you, want nothing to do with them because you told them, I'm sorry, I'm not coming drinking with you. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do drugs with you. I'm sorry that I can't work here because I'm not going to lie and cheat and steal for you. Blessed are you who are insulted and ostracized and set apart for his name's sake, not because you're rude, obnoxious, prideful, arrogant, and judgmental. We need to recognize and understand that, you know, we've got a message to share with the world, but we better share it in the spirit of love and graciousness. Because it's only then that they'll care what we have to say when they know that we care for them. See, Christ's words must be read carefully. Blessed are you when men hate you and they exclude you and they insult you and they reject you because of the Son of Man. Jesus said, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. The point is, since the wind was in Jesus' face the wind will be in our face. Paul advised Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You and I don't even know what persecution is in our culture. I was reading a commentary written by G. Morgan Campbell in 1931, and he wrote a comment about this passage of Scripture. And you know what he said? He goes, I realize as I write this in 1931 that it's hard for us to identify in our country that there are those who are persecuted for their faith. And I thought, dear God, what's happened in 70 years in our country that men and women in our country today are persecuted for the name of Christ, called bigoted, called narrow-minded, called extremists. But every belief system is an extreme belief system. You either believe what we tell you or you don't. We either, you either believe that you've got to repent of sin, believe that God loves you and He sent Christ to die for you, believe that He died and He rose again from heaven and receive Him as your Savior, or you don't. I haven't seen any other belief system. We had a couple of young guys come knocking at the door the other day with white ties, you know, on the bike. And, uh, and, their, and their belief system is, is extreme as well. You've got to believe what we believe. If you don't believe what we believe, then you know what? Then what you believe is wrong. Well, if you don't believe what we believe, then what we believe is right. And you don't believe it, then you're wrong. I mean, every belief system is, is narrow, there's no belief system that says you can believe whatever you want and still be welcome here. That's nonsense. Because they'll welcome you, but they're going to start to tell you what they believe, and they're going to try to get you to understand it so you believe it. 
And that's what we do here. We welcome anybody that comes, but you know what? I'm not going to be, I'm not going to hide or be subversive about what we believe. We're not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. That's what we're here to tell people. We're here to preach Christ and him crucified. We're here to teach people that the word of God is the, is the authoritative word of God. You know, it's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here to tell people. And we'll always do that. Praise God for that. And if I don't, then throw me out and get somebody in who will. But the reality of it is, is that we need to recognize, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in closing as we put this together, he said, suffering then is the badge of a true disciple. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memorandum drawn up in the preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those, quote, who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of His grace. Blessed are you who suffer, are insulted, are ostracized, are criticized for His name's sake. You know why? Because without, you can't make an impact without a collision. During a stressful time in Charles Spurgeon's life when he was depressed by criticism, his wife took a sheet of paper, printed the eight Beatitudes on it in large English script, tacked it to the ceiling over his bed. She wanted the reality to saturate his mind morning and evening. Every day he looked up when he woke up and saw the words, everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted. Isn't that great? So in plain talk, Jesus tells us, Genuine disciples are those who receive the healing touch of Jesus Christ. It starts there and nowhere else. It starts at the cross. You repent of sin. You respond to the finished work of Christ. You believe he died for your sins. You believe he rose again from the dead. You receive him. You welcome him with open arms as your savior. Number two, genuine disciples are those who recognize their need before God. They walk in humility, boasting only in the Lord and not in their own accomplishments. They hunger and thirst for God and His righteousness. Only then shall they be satisfied. They hurt over sin and its consequences, and they also are hated for living to please God. A person who is persecuted because of Christ is truly alive. There's an old saying that says, even a dead dog can swim with the tide. And I like that. But to swim against the tide, you must be alive and kicking and screaming and flailing and trying the best that you can through God's help to not be conformed to this world. Being yes men and yes women of an ungodly culture means that you are just drifting with the dead. We are no longer alive to sin. We become dead to sin and alive to God. Two more observations as we close. Genuine disciples are also those who rejoice over eternal rewards. They rejoice over eternal rewards. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. I like if you read Hebrews chapter 11, Moses. He laid aside all the riches of Egypt in order to focus on the rewards that God had to offer. What was ahead and what was in the future. What is eternal and not which is temporal. For those who rejoice over eternal rewards... And he says in closing, but woe to you who are rich. Those woes offset what we had just already studied. And in closing, we'll summarize it all this way. He's saying that the word woe means to regret. It's an expression of regret. What it means is how terrible or tragic. 
what Jesus is saying is, woe to those who are rich. Woe to those who are focusing their attention and putting their trust in the, in the temporary riches of this world. Woe to you. But blessed are those who keep their focus and their trust in the Lord. He's saying, woe to you who are well fed. But he's saying, you know what? Blessed to you for those who are hungry for the Lord. Blessed are you who continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He goes and says, you know, woe to you when he goes, woe to you who laugh now. Woe to those who laugh at sin. Mock God and righteousness and His holiness. Woe to you now because one day you're going to be accountable for that. You're going to answer to God. Woe to you now for inappropriate laughter. But blessed are you who hurt over sin and know the difference between the two. And he said, and last thing, woe to those. Woe to those who are treated well by all people. Woe to those who all people speak well of. Woe to you if you're popular with everybody. Because if you're popular with everybody, you stand for nothing. Woe to you who are more concerned with the applause of men than you are with the applause of heaven. Woe to you. But blessed are you who live their lives today more concerned that I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and I hear the applause of heaven than I care about the applause of men. Isn't that a wonderful thing? This is a great sermon. He just tells it on the level, man. No, not mine, this. (laughs) What does God require of us? but that we do justly, we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God. I wasn't talking about me. I was just saying, this is a great sermon, the sermon on the level. God tells it in plain talk. Let us hear his words and let us act upon it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the preaching of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Thank you that we are blessed to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Thank you we are blessed for those who aren't self-sufficient but lean upon you. Thank you that we are blessed when we're more concerned that we're pleasing to you than we are with being popular with men. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.